Welcome to The Wrap Up, a weekly podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap, and joining me is my co-host, Daniel Goldblatt, assistant managing editor. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Sharon. Good to see you again. Good to see you, not see you again. (laughs) So... This week, as Hollywood moves closer to thinking about considering to thinking to resuming production, (laughs) there are hurdles, both big and small, to overcome before the cameras can roll again. One of the more under-the-radar issues to solve, but a big one, is insurance. We will discuss this with the raps Beatrice Verhoeven and Elsa Ramo of Ramo Law. Then the Snyder Cut will finally be released to the masses. Yes, Zack Snyder's infamous edit of his film Justice League is going to see the light of day. But what exactly is it and why have comic book film nerds been clamoring for it? The Raps Umberto Gonzalez and Ross Lincoln will join us to drop a little knowledge. And later, we'll have our interview with the legendary Holland Taylor, star of the new Netflix series Hollywood. Lots of good stuff this week. Indeed, but first, let's do some headlines. Uh, Ronan Farrow is one of the most well-known journalists in the world, having won a Pulitzer for his work uncovering sexual abuse allegations against Harvey Weinstein and others. But in a scathing takedown piece this week, New York Times media columnist Ben Smith questioned Farrow's tactics, writing, quote, at times he does not always follow the typical journalistic imperatives of corroboration and rigorous disclosure, or he suggests conspiracies that are tantalizing, but he cannot prove, end quote. Farrow responded on Twitter, defending his work and saying, I stand by my reporting. Sharon, obviously no one is above this kind of scrutiny, but did you find Ben Smith's criticism to be warranted? Well, there's a lot of things that are really fascinating about this standoff. The first thing let's talk about is Ben Smith, to which I just say, wow, that guy's (laughs) been at the New York Times for all of like four weeks, and he has already made quite a mark. And this is a huge stink bomb that he's throwing in the middle of the media world. It's worth pointing out that having worked at the New York Times, uh, I know how play- that place works. It's very political. Uh, it's very, uh, obviously, tough standards to publish. Really, Ben was going way out on a limb to take on Ronan Farrow, as you say, a Pulitzer-winning New Yorker writer. Beloved. A beloved journalist. Forget about the beloved. The guy's just, he, he has credibility. He took down Harvey Weinstein and he wrote this, you know, epic best-selling book, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that they would publish this says a lot about how the New York Times feels about Ben Smith. This is something that I could easily have seen somebody saying, yeah, no, we're not going there. You don't really have all the goods. And in fact, of course, the media Twitterverse went bananas and start and took sides and started either saying, yeah, I always thought there was something fishy about that Ronan Farrow guy or saying, Ben Smith, you're picking, you're nitpicking. You don't really know about all the stuff down in the weeds that was going on here. But that's as regards Ben Smith. But I will say Ben Smith is a very, very fine reporter. And I've been very impressed by him since he started. As regards Ronan Farrow, who is another very fine reporter, there is a real qualitative difference, I think, that you have to look at. As, as your lens, as you're looking at this, about what Ronan um, published and reported on in The New Yorker, which took down Harvey Weinstein, and what he put in his book, Catch and Kill, which was really a, um, how can I say, it was like a, a, 
a defense of his life, his name, his reputation, and why NBC News did him dirty by uh, pulling the rug out from under him and forcing him to go with the reporting that he had about Harvey Weinstein to The New Yorker. And the whole underpinning of that book is this ill-defended uh, sense or feeling or belief, which is not enough, that NBC News had it in for him or that NBC News was threatened by Harvey Weinstein. And for that reason, they didn't uh, publish his reporting. He doesn't prove that. He doesn't come close to proving that. And I think that's where Ben Smith really has a leg to stand on. And pretty much any you know critical-minded reader, I won't even say a critical-minded journalist, would, would get that from reading, from reading the book. It's Ronan's view of the world about his saga at NBC News seen through his eyes. So that to me, I think is really distinctive because when um, when this whole thing blew up this week, and then I'll close on this one because <laughs> I know I'm being long-winded here, but um, Michael Luo, who's a former New York Times writer, who's now the, the, uh, one of the top editors, The New Yorker, wrote this very long Twitter defense of Ronan. But notably, it was a defense of Ronan's reporting of The New Yorker. It didn't have anything to do with Catch and Kill. And so I do think that Ronan is vulnerable to these criticisms because I think that he is uh, he's a celebrity journalist. Ben Smith kept calling him a resistance journalist. I don't really think it's about that. I think he's a truthy journalist, like a truth journalist. He wants to be, he wants to make a mark. He's exceedingly ambitious. There's nothing wrong with that. He has a big spotlight on him because he's Mia Farrow and Woody Allen and maybe Frank Sinatra's son, uh, because he's this like, you know, uh, preternaturally kind of brilliant person who graduated college at 16 and et cetera, et cetera. And finally, let's just say, what the fuck with Matt Lauer? Oh my God. So in response to this, Matt Lauer, who lost his job at NBC for having been exposed for harassing or allegedly harassing one of his, you know, junior staffers, writes a 5,000 word self-defense. massive article, was yeah. right. Oh my God. And I read that and could only think, ah, Matt Lauer is good buddies with Dan Abrams, who owns Mediaite, which never breaks any news and decides to publish this 5,000 word what, what do you call this? Like, a, I don't know. There's probably Diatribe, a missive. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I want to it's the opposite of a mea culpa. It's Fever a Fever dream. It's a you a culpa. Anyway. Oh, my God. Yeah, I w- Go ahead. I <laughs> wonder um, if, you know, when, when Ronan read Ben Smith's piece, he probably, you know, someone told him about it. And he was like, oh, okay. All right. That's interesting. I'll, I'll read it. And he gave, um, you know, a a pointed response. Do you think when someone told him that Matt Lauer wrote a response, he just laughed and went back to bed? Like, I, I just, I, he had, oh, he had all, to have gotten I, a chuckle out of it. Okay, let's just start with Ronan Farrow most definitely did not say, oh, that's nice that the New York Times knew me. No, but I mean, like, at least it's like a respected person. Shot me, shot me in the <laughs> head. No, he did not say that at all. He went, holy fuck, what, what is going on here? And why is everybody out to get me? That's what he said. I guarantee you. And yeah, he probably chuckled when he saw the Matt Lauer thing. Agreed. All right, let's move on, shall we? Let's move on. More news. Okay. The college bribery scandal is finally coming to an end. Actress Lori Laughlin will plead guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit wire and mail fraud, and she has agreed to serve two months in prison because, she says, she hired a guy to lie to get her two daughters into USC. I mean, we like USC, but 
is it worth going to jail? I don't know. Her <laughs> husband, Massimo Giannulli, is going to serve five months under this plea deal. They're supposed to enter their pleas Friday of this week. This story is wildly entertaining, both sad, tragic, and hilarious all at the same time. Right, I know. I'm kind of. I'm kind of going to miss it. I liked having the story <laughs> in my life. I liked, you know, just knowing that that they were still fighting this. It is interesting, you know, Felicity Huffman, who also pled guilty, she did basically like two weeks. And I'm sure, you know, Lori Laughlin probably won't do the two months. It'll be interesting to see what they do, oh, you know, wait a minute. in the middle what of this mean? pandemic. Right. That's what I want so to know. So it'll be interesting to see if she'll do any time at all. Well, what do you mean? She's um, having. They fought for quite a while. Yes, they were supposed to go. You know, to and this is where they, they ended up. And, yeah, yeah, they they really fought. You know, Felicity pled guilty pretty early on, and so and I, fell on her sword and yeah, gave absolutely. This very long, you know, sad uh, statement about how badly she felt. Lori Loughlin had did nothing of the kind. She went shopping. Quite the opposite, and, and I think also you know there was a slight difference. You know, Felicity's. Um, child is not in the public eye at all. And Lori Laughlin's daughter is, you know, like an Instagram, YouTube influencer. So there was definitely some difference there. But I, yeah, I think at the end of the day, I'm going to miss having the story in my life. I remember when it broke, I just found it fascinating from day one. I No kidding. Yeah, it's just, it was fantastic. I, I can't wait I, for I, some still... sort of TV movie. Oh, for sure. But I also can't understand how she's pleading guilty to going uh, and going to jail and agreeing to a plea that takes her to jail for two months during the pandemic. I think it's super cheating if she does that. And you're saying that she might not have to serve the time because 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 pandemic. It's a possibility, I'm sure. I'm sure her, her her attorneys will at least argue that. I mean, you know, like I said, she pushed this for quite a while, probably spent who knows how much money fighting. So I'm guessing she's going to try and avoid jail prison as, as, as much as she can. Okay. Well, life's not fair all over. Okay. Go ahead, Daniel. All right. Finally this week, the Atlantic, which has been doing some fantastic reporting during the pandemic Agreed. announced Thursday, it was laying off 68 employees, which is roughly 17% of its workforce. The company joins a growing list of media publications that have had to make cuts, including the Hollywood reporter, fortune, billboard, Buzzfeed, Vox, and many more. You know, as a member of the media, reading about these cutbacks really hurts and it, it hits close to home for me. I'm sure you feel the same way. Yeah. If you're in the media and you're still working, you're very lucky to have a job. I, am, yeah. uh, I think that that's right, Daniel. No, that wasn't <laughs> what I meant. But The Atlantic, which wins um, huge numbers of awards for its work, is run by um, an old friend and colleague, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, who does a fantastic job. Um it, it is losing about 20% of your, the workforce is a really terrible thing to hear. And also a little bit curious. One thing I'll note is that uh, they're not talking mainly about journalists. It sounded like that it was mainly. Yeah, there, I think there's some events, events. and staff. Type. Yeah, they yeah. have a very, very, um, I would say, robust, if not aggressive, events strategy where they do stuff all over the country and make and made a lot of money at that. But of course, none of us can do live events anymore. Uh, so. But what, what was odd to me about this announcement, uh, and tragic uh, as it is, was that it was uh, written and signed by David Bradley. David Bradley is this um, sort of wonderfully elegant, um, I'd, I'd say, you know, kind of a mogul, essentially, who made a lot of money in other businesses and has been running the Atlantic for many, many years. But he sold it 
two years ago, three years ago now, 2017, to Laureen Powell Jobs, uh, Steve Jobs' widow, who has the Emerson Collective and has invested uh, very uh, strongly in uh, independent media and um, uh, also production companies like uh, Anonymous Content here in Hollywood. So I was a little surprised, first of all, that he was the person making the announcement, and he also signed it as the owner, which he's not the owner anymore. He sold a majority stake to Laurie Powell Jobs, and she's ne she's nowhere to be seen on anything uh, of this terrible memo. And also, she certainly has the money to have avoided this outcome if she wanted to. So I, you know, I found that a little bit surprising. Yeah, and it's definitely, I feel like this is one of the first publications to go through this that is um, more subscription-based than ad-based. You know, mostly this has been happening, you know, the, the people that I mentioned do, The Hollywood Reporter, Billboard, BuzzFeed, they have certain things, but they rely a lot on the ad model. Uh, Atlantic does not as much, so that's particularly disheartening. That's I think a good that point. This is, this is really reaching across, you know, a lot of different parts of, of the media business. You know, that's a good point. And the other the other publication that you didn't mention that had cuts this past week that also does not rely on the ad model was The Economist. The Economist, uh, again, a very venerable and excellent, excellent publication, had massive layoffs. I want to, I'm, I'm not remembering exactly the number right now, but it was very significant. And I, I found that odd because they don't have advertising. Yeah, it just shows how far reaching you know, this particular problem is. Or it may be that these are media companies that were hurting before and they're using this opportunity to shed right. costs. Or even or even hurting in other aspects of their business and are pulling, you know what I mean? These companies, they own lots of different properties, so they're probably tightening the purse strings wherever they can. I, I think... If I think for The Economist, it's probably live events as well, because all of these media companies have, including ours, has moved into doing live events as another way of driving revenue at a time when Facebook and Google has taken all of our money. Thank you very much, Facebook and Google. Okay, let's move on. All right. Finally, this week, um, you know, we like to conclude this first segment as we do with a little bit we call Wax On, Wax Off, which gives our uh, founder and editor-in-chief, Sharon Waxman, the opportunity to speak out about something that is particularly, um, you know, that she's really into this week, her Wax On, and something that is particularly frustrating to her, her Wax Off. Sharon, you have the floor. Long list. All right. I'm going to do the Wax On. My Wax On is really interestingly good news. Um, the governor is going to be announcing production protocols to reopen uh, movie and television production in California on Monday. Uh, he announced that that news came out of a Zoom call that he had with uh, his entertainment commission that he's put together, which included uh, Netflix uh, chief content officer Ted Sarandos and filmmaker Ava DuVernay and many others. So I think the entire industry is looking forward to that for some guidance and some um, sort of positive reinforcement from the state about how to start production again. Uh, so that's one. My wax off, however, is also aimed at our state and our county officials. Guys, you have simply got to get your act together. It's like the third time this week that we've had confusing messages incorrect, imprecise, or contradictory information from the county, the city, or the state. Yesterday, there was another thing. We had a headline that they put out, the county put out a number talking about 890,000 people in the entertainment industry being put out of work. Then they had a walk, which is a huge number and very alarming, and we put that headline out. Then they, then they had to walk it back. That wasn't what they meant. They're partially employed. They're looking for work. They're 
I'm not even going to stand behind anything that they had to say about that. They've done that already with um, confusing people with announcing uh, half announcing uh, or saying it was coming a three month extension on the stay at home order, which also turned out not to be the case. So, I mean, you it, it's bad enough that we have to deal with incorrect, imprecise and downright false information coming out of the White House. It, you guys are just making it worse. Get your story straight. How about you, Daniel? All right. My wax on this week. I want to give a shout out to all of the wives, husbands, girlfriends, boyfriends, partners, whoever, who are cutting the hair of the person that they might be quarantined with. My wife this week gave me a little haircut. I don't know if you can see. She did a great job. I see a lot of people, you know, posting shots. Some people have to cut it themselves, which never works out well. But a lot of people are stepping up and learning, you know, how to do this to help people you know, they live with. And it seems like such a trivial thing, but a haircut, you know, makes you feel a little better. It's a positive thing. I feel so much better, um, you know, having and this little haircut. Terrific. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'll pass that on to my wife. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this has become such a thing that actually right before we went on the show, CBS announced they're going to have a show where celebrities cut their own hair with advice from stylists, you know, who are going to like zoom in and, and teach them how to do it. Uh, Rebecca Romaine and Jerry O'Connell are hosting that show. So it's, it's an Wait actual for the thing spin that people off. are struggling with. Wait so, for the spinoff, Home Done Manicures. That, yeah, that's Could another thing that people, you know, yeah, that'll be next. America's got nailed or something. I don't know. Um, my wax off this week, you know, I'm not the biggest proponent. I don't like wearing a mask when I go out. It's very annoying. It is now required in L.A. under any circumstance. And this morning I was walking my dog and wearing a mask and I saw a Postmates driver come up to our building to deliver um, some donuts, which looked amazing. He was not wearing a mask. And the woman who came down to accept the order, also not wearing a mask. I get it in certain situations, but this guy deals with I don't even know how many different strangers all day long. So now you're going to come down to interact with this guy. You don't know who he is. It seems like such a no-brainer. Like, I, I get it. It's annoying. I don't like it either. But wear the mask. It, there's the, the numbers that everyone puts out about how better wearing a mask is, how much it limits the spread of infection, is insane. It's such an easy, simple totally. thing to do. Please do it. I'm just begging you. You know, I, like He's I said. begging you. And I'm, I'm endorsing his begging. That's right. Yeah. This is a really easy thing to do that we can all do to protect one another and if it allows us to leave our houses come on cool yeah and like i said i get it you want to take the dog for a quick walk you don't want to put on a mask fine but if you know you're going to interact with someone there's no reason put it on no reason Please. agreed agreed all right that concludes this week's wax on wax off when we come back we will get into how insurance is playing a role in hollywood's return to production the hype behind the snyder cut version of justice league and Sharon's interview with Holland Taylor, one of the stars of the Netflix series Hollywood. Stick around. It's standard operating procedure in Hollywood. You want to shoot a movie or a television show, you have to be insured. 
but how do you handle insurance in the middle of a global pandemic without wrecking your budget? That's a problem producers are going to have to solve before any productions can resume. So here to help us navigate this super sexy world of production insurance are the raps Beatrice Verhoeven and Elsa Ramo at, of Ramo Law. Uh, Elsa, your firm uh, represents producers and content creators, and so you're right in the middle of this conversation. What are the what are the fundamental contours of the problem here with getting insurance done post pandemic? Well, right now we're kind of against a brick wall when it comes to insurance and the fact that insurance providers are not going to insure virus COVID related claims. So that runs the gamut from everything to disruption um, to any claim relating to the COVID virus, which right now they're trying to deal with all of the claims that happened in the midst of the shutdown a few weeks ago. So we're kind of stuck right now. Which means that um, there's no way for there to be a process to, uh, I, I guess, make people whole if people do get sick on on a production? It's not an insurable claim right now. And I think what it will, should work itself out, right? Like we hope that, and, and some of it is going to be on the legislative side, if there's going to be legislation to help empower and enable insurance providers to take on that risk. Um, and or maybe some form of rider policy that some insurance providers may provide that are very specific to virus inclusion. Right now it's excluded on all existing policies and for so, bond companies as well. So tell us, everybody's talking about how production is going to get more expensive. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you think those costs are going to be and where, where they're coming from. Well, insurance claim aside, just the, the navigation of creating a safe production environment is going to automatically impact the cost of production as we're all aware even just going to the grocery store you need to have gloves and even how the day-to-day -day process of being safe in an environment is costly in production so um, everything from how makeup is done to craft services to creating production protocols and guidelines that try to minimize the spread of the disease and also flagging how to determine if anyone is infected prior to entering into the ecosystem are all added costs that producers are all grappling with right now as they budget. Beatrice, you've been, you have been reporting out the story, uh, the insurance question specifically, and the production, uh, the tangle of issues that need to be sorted out before production can start. What are you hearing from people in terms of where the insurance issue plays in the whole kind of puzzle of putting all of this together? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Elsa was one of my, uh, the people I spoke to for the story. So thank you again. Um, but, you know, I spoke to three different experts. And basically, the story was that if you send um, employees back to work, you start production, cast comes in, and they contract the virus and file a claim, uh, there's no way the employer can be held liable, because you can't prove that you got COVID on set. And so that it's really messy in litigation, really costly in litigation. So, you know, um, Art Silbergeld, who's a partner at Thompson Corburn, who, you know, represents employers in litigation, he wrote this great article of how um, employers need to make sure there's like a number of steps that you have to make sure um, before you start production to avoid these hefty litigation costs, which is really interesting. Well, do you think, Elsa, that it's almost 
guarantee that we're going to have litigation in the years after we start going back to work because we are going to start going back to work? Yes. I mean, I, I think that litigation is inevitable, especially when it comes to people's lives, right? Which this pandemic, it's, it's, it's a life or death scenario. I, what will kind of factor in the level of liability will be kind of what's coming down the pike. As we all know, the state of California is issuing production guidelines. The unions are issuing their production guidelines. And so it'll be interesting to see what the federal and union standards are. Um, because that, I think, will inform how much litigation may arise based on the standards that have to be adhered to. And I'll just I'm jump in here quickly. Um, there was, I think, a lawyer spoke to THR, I believe. That's and he and he said that there have been, or he's seen four hundred claims, I think, already that range in like the five hundred thousand to two million range. So it's already happening. Yeah, I'm curious, Elsa, we're talking about productions that are going to start up again, but what about the productions that were forced to stop back in March and February? Are there COVID-related claims that they can make? I mean, I know it's not, these things weren't expressly covered in a lot of these insurance policies, but a lot of times in that gray area, it can go either way, right? Well, the reality is, is that at the time of the shutdown, there were policies where viruses were not excluded. And so part of the issue and why we're getting a lot of trepidation from insurance providers is there are outstanding claims that exist right now where producers or those that filed the claim feel like they have a right of coverage for the interruption due to the virus. So so that's there. There will probably be, you know, some dispute or litigation around that. Um, and now on a moving forward basis, it's an excluded situation where it's, you know, the, and that's exactly why it's excluded is because they don't want to have to grapple with that anymore. Hmm. So it's going forward, do you think that pe productions are going to be able to write in pandemic and virus related policies or are, is no insurance company even going to take that? I, I think, um, like all things, like it, it, there should be a resolution. I think for those of us that are old enough to remember, you know, when 9-11 happened, there was terrorism excluded. And we, part of it was through legislation and part of it was the insurance companies figured out a writer to cover that. So, you know, the past ho hopefully shows us that in the future we can figure out solutions to that. But in the mapping out the cost of the production now, right, if one wants to shoot in 2020, not only do we have to, to factor in increases to the budget in relation to making the production environment safe, we also need to factor in things that are not going to be covered by insurance, like reshoots, and what if somebody gets sick, and how do we pay for recasts? And so those type of contingencies that can be untenable right now really do need to be factored in to be able to get the green light, depending on who's going to bear the liability. Well, yeah, to that point, B, one of the things you touched on in your piece is that this is going to affect smaller productions differently than bigger ones, right? Yeah, I mean, um, so Ken J. Schmidt, who's an attorney who I spoke to, too, said it the best way. Let's say a producer signs a contract for renting a, a space and um, there's no in and out. You can't you pay for it up front and, you know, you're supposed to get that back when a movie opens. But if the movie doesn't release... Um, you're not going to get that money back because it's money spent. And larger productions can handle that. Um, smaller productions, and that's why it's important, you know, independent films and independent producers have insurance, um, can't maybe can't figure that out. But at the same time, as I wrote in my story, 
Um, Jason Blum is working on a plan to shoot a $6.5 million film on the universal lot. And they're kind of just gonna, you know, shoulder the insurance cost themselves because it's such a low budget film. He's known for low budget films, small crews, um, you know, they can just shoot in house. All, like all the paranormal activity films are shot in just one house, which they can film on the universal back lot. So that's maybe a way around that situation. But it definitely is, you know, as Elsa said, it's a uh, project by project basis. I think it's going to be something that would be really interesting to watch. And uh, it's kind of amazing that this situation hasn't come up before because we've had other global viruses, pandemics, there's been SARS, there's been H1N1. Um, it, it, Elsa, are you surprised that this hasn't come up as just as a legal matter yet in terms of writing it into policies? Well, it, it has come up in like very geographic ways, right? Like we're all familiar with, you know, we shoot a lot of stuff in Puerto Rico and we know about their hurricane season. Or if you're shooting in a jurisdiction that has these types of issues, whether it's the insurance or the bond company flagging it, it does get flagged. What's unique about this is that you can't sort of fly to a different location and get out of a problem. Um, and that that's a new construct, right? And like, I know Iceland has opened up for business and I know that everyone's looking at foreign um, options and even shooting in the Midwest states, which are a little bit more liberal about their policies, but it still is, is going to come to a screeching halt that there's an outbreak. So that's sort of the uniqueness of this, of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And well, also, also timing is an issue, right? Because like the disease could go on for years. Yeah, and I think that's the part that is is good in terms of everyone coming together is that for right now, there's a shared liability. Like insurance is not gonna cover everything. Um, people still wanna shoot, people still wanna earn a living. And so whether it's Scrappy Indies or Jason Blum taking on some of the liability or bigger productions networks and studios bearing some of that liability, I think people are trying to figure that out because until we have a vaccine, this is just our new normal. Right. Well, thank you so much, Elsa Ramo, and thank you, Beatrice, for joining us. This is definitely a subject we're going to come back to on this podcast. So um, thank you for bringing us up to speed as to where we are now. And I hope you'll come back and talk about this as we learn more things uh, in the coming weeks. Don't forget to check out Rap Pro, our members-only offering from the Rap and an essential news source for the entertainment business. Rap Pro was designed specifically for Hollywood insiders who want to stay on top of the business of movies, TV, and streaming. And it includes exclusive access news and insights that you really can't find anywhere else. So for more information and to subscribe to Rap Pro, visit therap.com slash join. If you want to prove your nerd cred on the internet, there are four words you can say. Release the Snyder Cut. Well, wishes do come true, and this week it was announced that Zack Snyder will release his extended edit of the 2017 film Justice League. But what exactly is the Snyder Cut, and why has the internet been clamoring for it? Here to help break it down for us are the raps Umberto Gonzalez and Ross Lincoln. Thanks for joining us, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. All right, I'm going to throw it out to you guys first. Please explain to me what exactly is the Snyder Cut. Uh, well, if I may. Okay, so in 2017, uh, <clears throat> actually in May of 2017, during post-production of, ba- of, uh, of Justice League, Zack Snyder experienced a personal tragedy when his daughter died. So he dropped out of the film 
And on the same day he dropped out, they announced that Joss Whedon had been hired to finish it. But he didn't just do post-production. He also filmed significant amounts of new footage and recut with repurposed Zack Snyder footage, a new film that, among other things, no longer set up a Justice League part two. Uh, that didn't really sit well with a lot of fans. I'm sure people listening to this podcast are aware of how contentious the Marvel versus D thing in movies has gotten. After Justice League came out and it was a critical disaster, but a financial, it was all right. It, I think it made, what, $675 million? Someone correct me on those numbers. It did middling numbers for a movie of that side. And immediately, I think within a couple of days of the movie coming out, this change.org petition to release Snyder's version of the movie was published. It got like 800,000 signatures. And since then, release the Snyder Cut has been the rallying cry for people who think that there's a, a better, longer, more interesting version of, of Justice League than the one we got. So, Umbe, once people started to, you know, petition for this, how did it actually start to become a thing that might be real? Well, credit to the release the Snyder Cut movement. They're quite a persistent group. They like just today they flew another banner over the studio lot. Uh, it's on Twitter there where they're thanking HBO Max and uh, and Warner Brothers to release the Snyder Cut. Basically, they're a well-financed group. Uh, they started a Kickstarter, I think, and uh, they raise money. They put billboards out in Manhattan. They do flyovers the studio. And poor Warners or HBO Max, every time there was an announcement of any kind, like, for example, when Ann Sarnoff got announced as, as president, um, the whole Twitter feed was bombed by the guerrilla tactics of the release the Snyder Cut movie. It's hilarious. It was like, hashtag release the Snyder Cut, release the Snyder Cut. And they pressured the studio so much that on the second year anniversary back in November, what happened was um, Ben Affleck, uh, Gal Gadot, yeah, and others. They And it, 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 was, it became a top Twitter trend, not only, I think, nationally and worldwide. So basically, they took Warners and HBO Max finally took notice. And I think as the story goes, Toby Emmerich uh, called his agent at CAA, Zack Snyder's agent, and was like, is there any way we could do something? Now, Zack Snyder made this movie under a previous regime that's no longer there. with Kevin Sujihara, John Berg, uh, Greg Silverman, and Jeff Johns. Uh, that's not the case anymore as Walter Hamada's in charge. So what happened then was talks were initiated, and then a screening on February 6th. Uh, at Zack Snyder's house in Pasadena, uh, held a screening of the unfinished Snyder Cut print with DC President Jim Lee in attendance, Emmerich himself, and a couple other executives uh, from HBO Max and uh, Walter Hamada himself. So basically, that got out that there was a screening. So I guess uh, talks happened and a deal was struck, and yesterday it was announced. But I found out about it from one of my writers, actually, over the over the past weekend that it's it's happening i'm like really so um but i gotta get again i have to give a shot to the release the snyder cut movie because they faced insurmountable odds over the last three years to see this happen and they were made fun of by people including myself i'm rocking a justice league shirt but um but we all ate crow and when it actually happened and made the announcement yesterday, they took quite the victory lap, or as Ross would say, take a lap, DC nerds. But that's that's the Snyder Cut. And, All right, uh, so 
It'll be coming out next year on HBO Max. Ross, maybe you can answer this one for me. Do we have any idea what it might include? What might be different in this version than what people saw on the big screen? Okay, well, this is the important thing to consider. As as our colleague Phil Owen put it last night, are we getting the Snyder Cut or just a Snyder Cut? I'm leaning more towards this is just going to be something new. I don't think there ever was like a truly completed version right that uh, like a, a, a truly completed film that Zack Snyder could have presented and said this is my my cut in part you know they always do reshoots for movies like this sometimes right up to the end and i'm convinced even though Joss Whedon ended up handling reshoots there probably would have been more reshoots especially under Snyder especially since as we've seen over the last few years Warner Brothers has really sort of uh improvised its strategy you know they announced a whole slate of movies in 2014 among them justice league part one uh for 2017 and justice league part two for uh 2019 and i mean it's 2020 now so justice league part two never happened um i'm not sure how much changed but what i suspect is probably the case is whatever Zack snyder turns in is probably not going to set up a justice league part two Uh, it seems like uh that would be kind of a letdown for fans to watch that version of the movie and know that the sequel's never coming it's possible they'll set something else up like for those of you who've seen justice league the version that ended up in theaters ends with a stinger where lex luthor and dead deathstroke appear to be forming the legion of doom maybe they'll keep some of that maybe they won't but i think what we're going to see is something that's sort of a hybrid of what he originally filmed and whatever new special effects effects and since they're going to spend millions on this maybe some new footage as well all right, so you alluded to this a little bit, but the DC universe through Warner Brothers has kind of underperformed, I would say. Uh, Wonder Woman, you know, has done well, but, you know, Aquaman Justice League did. was a little bit. Aquaman, Aquaman did okay, too. Yep. But I'm wondering, do you think that perhaps this could kickstart this whole universe again and maybe, you know, give it a little bit of more of a renewed interest and, and some, some needed energy into the entire franchise? Let me answer this one. Uh to correct what Ross said, Ross, there's got there from my reporting and my sourcing, there's not going to be any reshoots of any kind with any actors. It's just interesting. So it's just additional dialogue. Uh, here's something that hasn't been reported yet. He wanted, he did want to shoot and he wanted to do additional photography, but HBO Max said, no, that's not happening. We'll give you money uh, for post production, for special effects, for scoring, and even ADR with the actors, but no reshoots are not happening of any kind on this movie. Right. So this movie, is basically one and done. This is to close it off, to close the loop, to you know, finish the, st- the story that he set up. Maybe not the whole story because he did have like a three, five picture plan, but this, the Snyderverse, I'll call it, will end with the Snyder Cut. Don't expect no spinoffs with Batman or any, with Ben Affleck's Batman or any of that, but no, that's, uh, that's the latest. Interesting. Well, you know, these people, they definitely accomplished something no one thought was going to happen the next time. Yeah. The next time, like maybe I need to renegotiate my lease or something like that. I'm going to (laughs) employ these people to help me, you know, campaign for whatever I need because they certainly accomplished what no one thought was possible. Thank you guys for joining us. We really appreciate it. Our guest today is Holland Taylor, one of the most recognizable and beloved character actors on American television. 
She first broke into TV on Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks way back in 1980 and has gone on to countless roles in TV and film, earning six Emmy nominations, including a win in 1999 for playing Judge Roberta Kittleson on The Practice. Her latest role is in Ryan Murphy's new Netflix series, Hollywood, playing Ellen Kincaid, the top casting executive at Ace Studios, where the studio chief, played by Patti LuPone, has decided to defy society norms by casting an African-American woman as the romantic lead in a drama written by a gay African-American man. Kincaid supports the progressive choices of her boss and helps drive the success of this iconoclastic film. Here she is making a clumsy pass at her boss, the head of production, who she suspects might be gay. I confess I, I, I do want passionate love in my life. Well, and I think the world of you. Richard. Are you? Because I don't give a fake if you are. I just can't be with anyone. Fair enough. Welcome to Holland Taylor. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm flattered to be asked. Oh, we're thrilled to do this from your home during quarantine. Um, this is the brave new world, how we're doing it. Thank you for taking the leap with us. Well, my, my pleasure. It's amazing that we can do this, although it may seem strange. Uh, imagine what it would have been like 100 years ago if you yeah. had this pandemic and no contact with anyone and, uh, you know, just in the dark. Well, let's start with that. How are you feeling and how are you faring during? Well, it's, you know, it's like everyone. I, I think I it's a roller coaster. I mean, I have days where I think I can't do this a minute longer. And then I think that's insane. What do you mean you can't? What do you mean you can't stay at home and and, uh, and have somebody deliver groceries to you and, and make your own food and live in a very comfortable house? Uh, what do you mean you can't do that? I mean, it's when I think of what the suffering is all over the globe. It's really shameful to. It's shame-inducing to have any complaints at all. But it is a real test psychologically. Uh, the, the entire globe is feeling uh, frightened, uh, unknowing, insecure, frightened for themselves, wondering what the future will be, feeling whatever emotions they feel about their personal deprivations in their life, which are very great for many people. The entire globe is experiencing the same thing. That's mm -hmm. really saying something. Mm -hmm. how, how are you passing the time? Are you reading? Are you uh, because of both Hollywood? <laughs> uh, because of both Hollywood and Bill and Ted's going to be coming out this summer, and my production of Anne, which is going to be on PBS in June. I have a lot of interviews to do, so I do I do a lot of this kind of thing during the week. I also was meant to be in rehearsal right now for a production of uh, my play about Governor Richards, which was going to be. And Richards. Have, yeah, have its West Coast premiere at the Pasadena Playhouse next week. So oh my goodness. I was meant to be doing that right now. So therefore, what I have been doing this entire time, I started it when I when I really thought we were going to be doing it. Mm -hmm. I had to relearn this vast text. It's about it's about 
38 single space typewritten pages. I mean, it is wow. a solid block of text that the first act is about, the first act is about 59 minutes and the second act is about 54 minutes. It's a one woman show? Yeah. And to it, I've done it, this will be, it's would have been its eighth run, full run in a theater. Mm -hmm. I've done it on Broadway at the Kennedy Center mm -hmm. in Chicago. And that's what this was going to be. So I had to relearn the text. I haven't done it in four years. So it took, I figured two months and I have six days a week. I work on FaceTime, sort of like this mm -hmm. with an assistant who is looking at the script and I'm not looking at the script and I'm going through it and relearning it. And I, I relearn it by, first of all, isolating all the verbs because verbs tend to drive the thought in the sentence. So for the last two months, I have six days a week spent two hours relearning Anne, which I could now sit here in this chair and say from beginning to end. And so is that's it, what, what's gonna, what is going to happen to the play since it can't open? Well, we're going to hopefully do it as soon as theatrical productions are allowed to happen safely, which, I mean, I hope I live long enough. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, I would think I, it could be it could be as little as a year, possibly, next spring. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that, my goodness. It, it all depends what happens. It all depends what happens in the world of medicine, really. Yeah, well, that's true. And it is kind of uh, fantastic that Hollywood was finished and could debut. Uh, and it's been getting a lot of conversation. So yes. let's, talk, let's talk about this role that you play and this whole ensemble piece, which is kind of a, uh, a panoply of uh, marginalized characters, gay, black, um, you know, uh, Asian, uh, just all the people who weren't invited to the party. <laughs> and, incidentally, mm -hmm. and, and incidentally, older women. And older women, older, right? Two, two older women characters who are marginalized in a different way. Yes, I, 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 that, that definitely did not escape me. So I, I understand that Ryan Murphy wrote this role for you. Um, did how, how did that come about? Did he just call you up and say, look, I... Um, here it comes. I'm sending you something. You're going to do it. <laughs> How does that work? Basically, well, first of all, you're going to do anything Brian gives you to do. And uh, I, you know, I, I have never worked for Brian, and I don't know whether he has ever wanted me to in the past. But Sarah has been on, you know, says so his principal star in his shows, and I Sarah think it's, yeah. And given the social media life that we all live, I actually thought that being in a show with Sarah would be distracting, would not be helpful. So I, I would not have expected to be on a, uh, a, um, a Ryan Murphy show, but then this show was a separate kind of uh, series, a separate limited series, and Sarah wasn't going to be in it. So maybe that's why he thought of it. So he did call me and he said, I'm writing a part for you and you're going to love it. And I said, I am sure I am. And sign me up. That's and then I did love it. It sounds like uh, really fun. And by the way, I love your wardrobe in the show. My God, you get to wear these. Your first of all, the hair is so elaborate, and the hats you're wearing like suit hats. Another gorgeous it, it, one, and everything. I think those Fur. hats were all vintage. Those hats were vintage hats, and the suits. They I don't know how they worked as fast as they did because the scripts would come really, you know, very very late. I mean, we're right on top of production, and they had to pull these costumes together very quickly and they're they're just a genius about it it's um, set in the 40s or the 50s like 1940 no 46 46 46 so right after the war yeah. pretty yeah. much right and, and, and yeah. yeah my There's, parents 
My, I know this delay is hard. I'm so sorry. It's my parents' era. I mean, I was born in 1943, so I was a kid during those years. But I remember my parents and all their friends, and their what this period is what I grew up seeing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, in fact, I even brought in for reference some pictures of my parents because they were very much sort of the Philadelphia story. And and my mother was quite stylish, and they copied, unbeknownst to me, they copied one of the outfits that my mother wore in a photograph that I gave them. That's and they fantastic. copied it for me to wear. And I, I was so touched by that. It also was a great look. It's so. a great, you you just look so stylish and Patti LuPone looks incredible in, in these scenes. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so what did you think of this whole concept of this fantasy rewrite of Hollywood as a progressive place where black people and gay people and older women and Asian people and brown people are, are able to be respected and taken seriously? I think it happened on its feet. Uh, Ryan is Ryan has learned, I guess, to trust his instincts. He has a feeling about taking a show in a certain direction, and he will do it on the strength of that feeling. He just knows this is what it has to be because it didn't start out that way. His first concept was just it was going to be in that period. It was going to talk about besides some things about Hollywood that people are not aware of, the underbelly, things that happen behind the scenes. It, it always had that point of view. But then very soon, uh, we were sort of in the first episode when Ryan started to realize uh, what more he could do with it, like creating this alternate universe where things that people felt strongly about uh, could, be, could be supported and, and followed and take it and you could take a chance on making these societal changes, which certainly, I'm, I'm absolutely certain there were people in that period who did want those things to happen. When you think of the, of the great, well, they would have called in, the, in that day, a black woman, a black actress would have been called a co- colored actress. That was the right. word that was correct and used and, and totally respectful. I mean, think of, of um, some of the black great stars of that day who could not be the main star. They had to be the entertainment part of the movie that would get cut out when that movie went to the South. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. extraordinary. So I'm sure there were people in that in that era, uh, probably Northerners or, or people that not from the South, perhaps, who felt this is terrible. We have to change this. Well, one of the things that's so interesting about the show is that it mixes real historical characters like uh, Hattie McDaniel, who's played yes. wonderfully by Tifa, and there's a party at George Cooker's house. Um, there's this uh, secret, uh, mm, what do you call it, like gas station where people go to meet to have um, assignations, men and which women. Is true, which, which is all true. Yeah, which is true. Um, and so there's this interesting mix of truth and fiction. And of course, you're playing at this beautiful, legendary Hollywood studio, which doesn't actually exist, kind of looks like Paramount. <laughs> I presume that's oh, where you guys were at, oh, it's a, a studio. Like yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, talk, talk for a minute about sort of what that was like to sort of step back in time. And, you know, it had to, I, I can't imagine it was anything but fun to kind of be in that role. And then tell me well, about. That- yeah, I want to hear about playing, well, working I, with Patty LeBron because your scenes are great with her, and she's fantastic in, in this series. I too. think the older the older set on this show, uh, Joe Montello and Patty LePone and I, and Dylan to a degree, although he's younger than, than we are. But the the more mature actors, we had the greatest time imaginable doing this, and it was all terribly meta. 
I mean, here we were, we were shooting actually at Sunset Gower and we did some things over at Paramount to use the gate and some of the mm -hmm. more iconic entryway looks of the thing. So we're shooting on the studio where, like, where we can see the Hollywood sign. You walk, out of the, you walk out of the soundstage and there's the Hollywood sign at night in the sunset. And it's like, and we're, and I was playing a seasoned and respected and powerful uh, uh, entertainment person from that era. And, and I am not powerful, but I am certainly seasoned. Oh, you had, you're, you're well so seasoned. powerful. I'm well seasoned. <laughs> I'm well seasoned. I, I'm accomplished. I've been around a long time, and I, I think if I have a if I have an opinion about a piece, somebody would listen and figure that I knew what I was talking about. And so that's what this character is. Joe Montello is the biggest director on Broadway, and has had every experience imaginable in show business. And he was playing the the second in command, who actually runs the studio. So it was very meta for him. And uh, so and Patty, Patty was the most agog of everybody. I think Patty was the one who just sort of couldn't believe what we were doing, that we were playing characters from this wonderful era that we love. And unlike me, Patty, Patty, the, one of the great stage performers and musical comedy performers of all time in history, she will go down. Absolutely. For sure. Um, it, she, when she was a kid, she wanted to be a movie star. She wanted to do Hollywood. I did not. I was from Philadelphia and I read theater biographies, the Luntz, Catherine Cornell, I, I wanted to be in the theater world and I didn't, I, I saw movies and I love movies, but I never envisioned that for myself. It never actually even occurred to me. I wanted to be in the theater in New York. So, 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 when, so, so she when was crazy about it. So and the two of you kind of, did you know each other before, by the way? The way one does in New York in the theater. I mean, we, yeah, we knew each other and seen each other off. I'd seen her backstage and everything she's ever done. I mean, in recent years, of course, she's done quite a lot in recent years. She did a unbelievable revival of Gypsy. Um, so, when, so on the set, did, did the two of you uh, kind of have, have, a, have a, it feels like you have a really good chemistry and she's just so, um, you know, she bites into she, every scene, as do exactly you. Accurate. Uh, she more than I, I've never seen anybody with the, with the energy of Patty LuPone. She also would always have worked very carefully on her text. She knew her she knew her script perfectly and was very responsible to it. I mean she's a really you're a musical comedy performer. You do that eight times a week. That is the heart of discipline, beats in Patty LuPone. So she was very, very dependable in that way. But we also she had a lot of energy generally, so we always had a lot of fun, fun conversations. And, and, and you, she's and just a great girl. And I I got to know her on this job. Got yeah. to know her really love her personally. And then there's all these young actors, most of them unknowns. Um, of course, Laura Harrier, who plays the lead. Did you talk uh, among yourselves as a cast about kind of this sort of through the looking glass aspect of the of the series, which is we're recreating what might have been. Of course, the film that gets made goes on to be a big hit. Yes. Uh, spoiler alerts that you go to the Oscars. Um, and it you know, th there's been uh, some commentary about it that that that, that it's just not. Th there's been some criticism actually of the show that it doesn't hold together because it is so kind of everything is so golden and beautiful. Um, well, it you... holds together in in the sense that it does what it wanted to do. It may not do what what somebody else would want it to do. Do you know what I mean? And the yes. use of the the use of the historical characters is really no different from using Paramount lot or using 
an iconic place. It's it's to it's to you know add a patina of the of the real thing. I think the characters are are the historical characters are represented um, somewhat accurately. Although Rock Hudson, I think they took some liberties there with right. Rock Hudson's actual history. But it's it's all made into a it's all made into a wish fulfillment, a fantasy, a fantasy of what could have been and what the world would be like if people had this kind of goodwill. So, I mean, if you're writing, a, if you're making a fantasy, whatever you say goes. And the thing is that the public, it's really true of a play. If you establish certain rules about what world you're in early on in a play, the audience sees, sees it and says, oh yeah, I see. Okay, okay, we're there. Okay, that's where we are right now. And they go there. And, and hopefully, I think it's harder to do in a movie in a way, but, um, because there isn't that electrifying presence of the, the the bargain being made with the audience in person. Mm -hmm. But I think that it is the same idea. He he's created a world where that's what happens. And it it stimulates, look, there's no question, but it has stimulated a tremendous amount of conversation. Well that's and definitely that's, true. that's that's the that's the proof of the pudding right there. It's worth doing. Well, yeah. So I just want to read a couple of comments that were so, some of the maybe painful in some ways that people, the, the Atlantic wrote a piece that called it earnest nonsense that yeah. I thought was like, um, I'm sure it's painful for Ryan to hear that because he's trying to make a point. When, when you see commentary like that, did you, do you, how does that make you feel that, that, that people didn't get what Ryan was setting out to do? Well, that's always going to happen. First of all, if I I generally don't read reviews, uh, I, I genuinely truly don't. Mm -hmm. um, but I did in this case because I'm a cog and you know I'm a cog in a rather large piece of machinery, and I was interested in hearing what people thought. But the fact is, to call something nonsense when it's a fantasy is kind of like, well, what do you mean? You could call it nonsense if it purports to be a history and it tells it very inaccurately or, or carelessly, then you can say, this is a lot of nonsense. It may be entertaining, but nothing was like that. But mm -hmm. if, it's a, if, it's a, if it is a purported fantasy that blends complete fiction with fact, then how can you call it nonsense? Mm -hmm. It doesn't purport to be a, a literal recounting of anything. Mm -hmm. But well, I, I mean, it takes, takes, takes all kinds. Yeah, it does take all kinds. Uh, and I think that Ryan uh, definitely went out on a limb and saying, this is the world that I would like to see. And he gets to do that. Um, but of course. He, he lives on a limb. He, he, he lives live on the limb. That's very true. But it's, as I, I, it's funny. I have, I put, uh, I my play about Anne Richards is completely written. I mean, there might be a sliver or two uh, lines that she actually said, but mostly it's it's a narrative. It's a play that's completely created, and um, I do have her say something that that always tickled me because I know she would have said it if she had thought to say it, and it's uh, you you got to go out on a limb because that's where the fruit is. That's wonderful, but in some ways that's true for you too because I I, would, I do want to ask you about um, you know playing this character under particular theme in the Hollywood show. I mean, when you yourself have been, um, you know, out on a limb in a way in your relationship with Sarah Paulson, yeah. who is, mm -hmm. which if you were around in the forties or even early in your career, the eighties, I don't know, would you have been comfortable, you know, being just natural and okay, just living your life in a relationship with another woman? 
I, well, I've never, I've always been, I've always been in public living a normal life, going to restaurants with, with whomever I've been with. And I, I think I, my first relationship was with a woman was when I was about 30. But I've never been um, involved with anyone who was, who was famous, much more famous than I. <laughs> so uh, that's, it wasn't some choice like now I'm going to, now I'm going to be public about this. I've, I've always been public, but the public, there was no paparazzi hanging around my door. Well, but that does put more pressure on you um, if if you're in a, if you're in an environment where that is frowned upon. So I just yes, you know. You well, just... it was not. It's not always been comfortable at all because God knows there's a million prurient people in the world, and and we're not Europe. Uh, I think America. I always make this analogy. It's probably hogwash, but America is a very young country, and it's a lot of its attitudes and a lot of its judgments are very prurient. And I think immature as human beings. Uh, I mean, to have a lot of the racial and societal judgments that people make, I find um, like, you know, shallow, callow teenage opinions. Not to put anything wrong on teenagers, but we all grow and mature into what, into full, responsible, thinking human beings, I hope. And in Europe, there just, there isn't this prurience or prejudice, or I've never encountered in Europe. So it's like a specifically, specifically American uh, problem, I think. And my attitude has been to largely ignore it. I don't, um, I don't broadcast, I don't talk about my relationship per, uh, per se, because any more than I would if it were uh, the, the usually typical marriage relationship. It's because I'm of a certain age. I'm from a certain generation. It wouldn't be appropriate for me under any circumstances. I just, I just wouldn't. Mm -hmm. I, I would talk about. I would talk. I mean, I'm talking about it now because it pertains to society, and and it's a timely question. I don't have any objection to the question, but I, I don't talk about my relationship per se because it, it is not natural for me to do so under any under any circumstances. Yeah. So, so that's why I don't do interviews about coming out. First of all, I never did come out. I just have lived my normal life. But this really involves someone who's very, very famous. And well, also yeah. uh, has an enormous uh, young fan base, as well as the people who just admire her across the globe for her acting. She has a lot of very, very young people. So it's you, you have generation. a big fan base too, Holland. If I, if I may say, I've watched I've watched your work my entire life, and I just I, I will tell you that your your name came up when I was your your age came up. Pardon me when I was doing the research. Hard to believe you're well into your seventies, if I may say. Bravo, incredible! Um, and the idea that you're doing a, a one woman show for two hours on stage, the stamina that that requires. <laughs> I can't just, even, <laughs> I hope, but I, by really relearning it, which I've now achieved, I now have to keep it sort of on the back burner in, indefinitely. And I, I, I'll continue to use my assistants to listen to it once or once, twice a week. Do you have, it alive. It's huge. It's it is huge. It is huge. And, and you continue to work a lot. Um, it's incredible. Do you have anything in particular in your mind that you have as a goal? I still want to do this or that. I mean, you've just done so many wonderful roles over the years. Well, I, I would like to do, I would like, I played a few once or twice. I've had the chance to play a, a real person in film like Ellen, like Ellen Kincaid, who is, who is uh, a really 
co complete person. You get a sense of her as a human being. And you don't get those roles very often. And I would love to do more of that if it, could, if it would ever be possible. And it's not the size of the role that matters. It's the dimensionality of the role. You just want to play someone who's not some sort of cliche or some hastily dashed off character to perform a certain function. And uh, I would also, I would like to do Anne again, because looking back now, it's been a decade since I started, since the first production of it. And I can, I do have the physical stamina to do it, uh, to do another run one more time. And we were on the cusp of doing it. And I, I consider myself under contract still to Pasadena Playhouse. It will be the first thing I feel obliged to complete. And I, I want to very much because writing that play, researching it for years and writing it was unquestionably not a career move or anything to do with show business. It was, it became like a vision quest. And I was in the service of something much bigger than I, which was, uh, it was, which is why the work actually wasn't taxing in a way, because it was like what, what you would do for your child. You don't even think about it. Well, of course I'm going to work around the clock for six years. Hmm. I mean, it's just like, and, and it means it is the accomplishment of my life by far. So to have another chance to do a live run of it would be wonderful because every time I've done it, I've been on my own shoulders from the time before. And now, I, as I have rehearsed it, as I go through it, I think I'm just such a different person. I'm a bigger person. I'm a wiser person. And I've done this so much now that now it would be such a rich experience. So, so that's what I would like to do. I would like to have one more stage run of that. Oh, well, I'm going to make it my business to come see you when oh. you get to play Anne Richards at the Pasadena Playhouse. What a thank great so historic figure. Well, thank you so much, Holland Taylor. Thank you for all the roles and the wonderful <laughs> entertainment you've given us over the years. Thank, thank you, you for your um, candor and your honesty and your time today. And we wish you many more years of many more fantastic roles and Richards and whatever else you want to do. And thank you, Sharon. Thank, Thank you. you. Stay safe and be well. Lovely interview. And that's it for this week's episode of The Wrap-Up. Thank you to all of our listeners. Remember to please follow or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate and review us to let us know what you think of the pod. See you next week.